Good morning, everybody. Welcome to 6-8. Uh, I know that we were supposed to be back in the building today and doing a combination of live streaming and uh, live meeting, but uh, the governor has basically put us back to pretty much the yellow stage, and so we want to be obedient to that out of care and concern for our community and uh, and some other just stuff that needs to get done, you know, as we, as we, over the, over the summer. So anyway, uh, so hope, to, hopefully we'll get back there soon, but man, you know, I, I miss seeing all you guys anyway. Um, so, uh, we're going to continue the live stream and you'll, you'll get those emails, you know, into the future. But, uh, I want to remind parents that, uh, Kim will be emailing out your child's curriculum every Sunday, uh, for the Sunday, uh, usually on Saturday, the Saturday beforehand. Uh, if you're new and you're not on her list, please email admin at 68.org and get placed on, in our system and we'll, we'll get that email to you. We'll also, you know, get you on the list to update you about other news and things like that. Um, I, I do think that she had a little issue with one of the videos. We couldn't get it downloaded yesterday. So, uh, you may be short one video, but I think you have all, everything else you need uh, for today for your kids. Uh, secondly, uh, spiritual mentors. We do have a, a group of spiritual mentors at our church. You can email spiritualmentors at 68.org, and uh, Rob will get you connected to the right person. These are just people that have read a bunch of books and, you know, practiced some of this stuff like different, you know, uh, ways to connect with the Lord. And, you know, sometimes your walk gets kind of um, dry or whatever, or, or maybe you can't necessarily see where the Lord is taking you, where the Holy Spirit's leading you in life, and you need a you need a sounding board. And these people are good for that. So email spiritualmentors at 68.org to get uh, set up with that. Uh, lastly, again, uh, if you're, if you're um, uh, looking for ways to tithe to the church, to give to the church, uh, go onto the giving page on our website, and there are a number of different options. There's the text to give option at 610-590-9199, and you can just text the word give, and then initially it'll set you up to do that, and then uh, you can just do that from then on. There's also directions for that on the giving page on the website. You can give through Venmo. Uh, at uh, 6-8 and the Little Strip Vineyard, and uh, that's a way to give. You can send a check to 1116 Lancaster Avenue, Bryn Mawr, PA 19010, and we'll get those deposited for you as well. And again, the, the best thing, the easiest thing is to set yourself up on Breeze, which is our church management system. Uh, it's our giving portal as well, and the directions for that are on the website. Uh, just go on there and uh, set yourself up and it'll automatically do a, a transfer every month or every week or whatever you where however you set it up. Uh, again, if you've been giving through Simple Give, which was our former giving portal, please close that down and then move it over to Breeze because we're going to be phasing Breeze or Simple Out, Simple Give Out soon. Um, anyway, uh, that's pretty much all of the announcements uh, let me just pray us into our sermon today. Father God, we thank you that you are uh, King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are creator God, that you intimately know us physically, emotionally, spiritually, in all ways you know us, and you created us in certain ways, and you call us to a certain purpose. 
And we ask that you would uh, make these things clear to us. Let us understand who we are in light of you. Let us hold the mirror up to ourselves and see what you've created us to be and how you've created us to live. And uh, let us walk that out in our lives and in community with others. And we just pray that you would speak loudly today, Holy Spirit, that you would come and convict where conviction is needed and encourage where encouragement is needed. And uh, let us feel your and understand your presence this morning. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, before we get started, I just want to say that, you know, like some sermons are, uh, you know, encouraging, they're uplifting, they're, you know, they're, you know, they might be informative, they might be very theological, you know, the, the sermons, you know, have different feelings about them, depending on what you're preaching on or what's going on around you and all that stuff. And today, uh, I really want you to listen carefully. I, I think this is probably one of the more important sermons that I'm preaching uh, this year, um, I might say differently in five months, I might have come up with another one and think, well, this one's even better, you know, but I, and, and it's not that I think that I've, I've done such a great job, but the, but the issues that we're talking about today are important. And, uh, and I want you to, to listen carefully, even if it feels like you're a little bit in a sociology course somewhat, I'd like you to just listen carefully and, and, uh, think through this and pray through this and, and, uh, let God speak to you. I, and I, that's my prayer is that everything that is of Jason would fall away and everything that is of the Lord would, uh, continue and stick to us, you know. So anyway, two weeks ago, if you remember, we read verses on, uh, justice and mercy and the like, and we took the liberty of saying at that time that Micah 6-8 sums them up in essence. And Micah 6-8 is the, the, where we get the name of our church from. And that, that says, he has shown you, O mortal, and what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And then we looked at two short passages in Revelation, which give us so much insight into the future image of the diverse or the multi-ethnic body of Christ. Uh, first, in Revelations 5, uh, verses 9 and 10, it says, speaking of Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and, a, and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And that is just such a beautiful image, right? And that image is carried over in uh, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And this is really the image that I want you to, to for you to get emblazoned in your mind. You know, I want you to think about this image all week, right? And it says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches. And that's that's symbolic of even though they're all from these different nations and tribes and language languages, they are uh, they are unified under Christ, all right? And that's, that's a very important thing because all of these sermons in this series called All Peoples is really much more about unity than anything else, unity within the church under Christ. But I'll continue. Uh, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now, I always imagine that as just a huge like valley or field and, you know, just 
gobs and gobs of people, right? And Jesus is enthroned on the side of a mountain or something. And this is my image. And, and, and everybody's there shouting in their own language, you know, you, that, that's that sentence, you know, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Right. And, and that is just such a, a great image to have in your mind. Anyway, we said that this image speaks volumes, um, including the, uh, of the worth. It speaks of the worthiness and the authority of Christ to define our identity in life. You know, that God created the world and created its people in a certain way and for a certain purpose. And identity, God's given identity, is a gift to us. It's a divine gift to us. And our obedience or operating or living out of that God-given identity and, and our evangelistic purposes on this earth brings with it a, a freedom and a health and a fullness to life. And this image in Revelation 7 there is one of unity with all the different diverse peoples of the world under Christ, right? Now, to get to that future image, uh, that final future image, uh, Christians now, we, we, we immerse ourselves in the revealed word of God, the Bible as we have it, right? And then we are guided by the Holy Spirit and we're living out of shared conviction of the church, you know, of, of the whole church in issues of morality and fairness and justice, right? We don't, we don't come to these conclusions on our own. We come to these conclusions together, right? As the church and throughout history, we've all, we always have. And, and then, you know, as we do, we, we live this way as we go about taking the message of Christ out to all the nations and nations is people groups, you know, these different, uh, you know, groups of linguistically and culturally different people, calling them also to unions to Jesus, because that is life and health for everybody, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, his last command, our first concern. Amen to that, right? So I love that. Just love all that stuff. Um, you know, and I would remind you that Jesus prayed for our unity in John 17, uh, speaking uh, to the Father as he prayed, and but referring to himself in the third person, he said, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, verses 2 and 3. Now that again speaks of his authority and, 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 uh, it, it references this open door that anybody has to come into relationship with God once again through Christ. And that's beautiful, right? And, um, in, in praying for the believers that were right there at, with him at that time, you know, that's what he was doing. He was praying for those, his disciples right there, but he continued also to pray for the, all the future peoples that would come to know Christ through their message, you know, all those people standing in, uh, in front of him in Revelations chapter 7, pretty much, right? And he says, my prayer is not for them alone, those guys right in front of them. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe uh, that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, uh, that they may be one as we are one. Listen to the unity in the, this, this passage, right? I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. That's his desire. 
It's important. Unity is important to Jesus, right? So it should be with us. Distinctly, unity in Christ is essential, which makes this conversation oh so important in our current social climate, right? You know, some would say that the concept of race as defined in society right now is really a social construct. What do I mean by that? I, I mean that biblically, the, the Bible sees us all as one human race, as descended from the shared ancestry of Adam and Eve, although we're broken down into various cultures and tribes and languages or people groups, right? You know, when it speaks of nations in the scripture, whenever you hear, see that word nation, uh, it refers not to nations of political boundaries, but of people groups of cultural ling- linguistic distinction. Right. It's a, and really, it's a healthier way to look at, the, at, at everybody in the world, since viewing everyone as a fellow member of the human race, I automatically see them as equal with me. And I can automatically glory in the God given diversity that he created them to, to have. Right. So the question is, how do you view others? Especially how do you view others, excuse me, different than you? You know, one person recently said, I was listening to the news one day, they said the real danger isn't the white supremacist. It's the white liberal progressive who, although denounces racism on the street, when they see a black man on the street, they cross to the other side. That's Now, think about that statement. It says a lot about all of us. It really does. It really does. The question is, what do you do? As a white person, do you cross to the other side of the street? Now, we have to admit, there may be very complicated issues why someone would cross to the other side of the street to avoid another person. I'm not, I'm not talking about just, you know, put yourself in a dangerous situation every time. But I am talking about the simplistic idea that you see somebody different than you, so you cross over to the other side of the street because you have preconceived notions in your head, right? So... As a white person, do you cross to the other side of the street when you see somebody? Or, here's another question, as an Asian or an African-American, do you view all whites as racists who just need to be corrected? One of the greatest compliments my oldest son, Aiden, uh, received was when a man recounted walking with him in Philly, and that man was a suburban knight through and through, and Aiden has lived in a multi-ethnic neighborhood for years. He's been down in the city for years. Just bought a house down there and doing really well. Got married a couple weeks ago. Amen. And as they came upon some guys, Aiden Aiden and this other man walking down the street, they came upon some guys on the street corner hanging out and talking. It, it, It immediately produced fear in this man that Aiden was with. But Aiden automatically engaged these guys in conversation, busting around with them and talking with them. And within minutes, this man was very convicted of his wrong assumptions about these guys. And I was very proud of my son. And I commend the man as well. Since Aiden exhibited a shared humanity with these guys from the onset, but, you know, this other guy humbly learned a lesson about himself that he, he admitted quite openly. And that's good. So do you view other people with a crooked eye? Now, I'm not trying to shame us because many times we do these things. You know, if familiarity breeds contempt, unfamiliarity breeds even more, I think. So do you assume that when a person looks at you in a certain way that it's automatically negative due to the color of their skin or their style of dress or what have you, 
without asking what they really meant by the look because you just know that that look was racist or that look was judgmental in nature. And even when you do ask them and they respond, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean it that way. I would never say that. You don't take them at their word and you just say, well, you just, didn't, you just don't realize what you really meant. I know what you really meant. Now, is that fair? Is that a way to begin and foster healthy relationships? Is that the way to pursue reconciliation with other peoples? Is that just? Is that a just way to live with people? You know, we all do these things, and those of us that are growing in Christ have to repent of them. And we, we do, but hopefully we, we have to repent of them less and less over time as we're transformed more into the likeness of Christ and we see people as he sees them. And love replaces fear. Love replaces fear. Isn't that the key to it all? Ask yourself next time you're in, that, in a situation that makes you uncomfortable, what, what would Aiden do? <laughs> you know, and then go and engage and push aside fear and push aside assumption to really know that person, right? Not because Aiden is our great model, even though, you know, he's, he's a great kid and he had a great father, you know, some upbringing and stuff. But anyway, but because in that one instance, he did exhibit a Christ-like outlook uh, and approach to others different than him. You know, beginning from negative assumptions isn't viewing others as fellow members of the human race made in the image of God and valuable in the eyes of God. It actually robs them of their individual voice and personality, assuming that they're coming from a certain point of view due to their group identity. You know, and negative group identities uh, and stereotypes are often a danger, right? They, they can leave no room for appreciation of peoples as God's creation or the possibility of Christ's transformation in the heart of a person. It can begin with distrust and negative assumption and project things onto people which we really don't know is true about them. And that's not fair. And besides, people are really fun and interesting. When you push past your fears and unfamiliarity, if we were all like just the same, that would be so, so boring, right? You know, I should say, and this is an important thing to know, the concept of justice is woven all throughout Scripture from the very beginning of biblical history to the very end. Now, let me me say this. I'll say this twice because this is really important. Justice is a God-authored concept. Justice is a God-authored concept. We wouldn't have come up with biblical justice on our own due to our strong drive towards group belonging and self-preservation. We really wouldn't have. Imagine living in those early days of history with tribalism as the standard when the call to conquer and subjugate other people groups was the norm. If you, want, if you wandered outside of the boundaries of your own people group, you ran the risk of subjugation or worse by another. You know, and then here comes this nation, Israel, you know, way back when, like, let's say you're a foreigner and, and Israel comes along following God and, and, and following Jeremiah 22, verse 3, where it says, do what is just and right 
rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. You know, the, the, the most vulnerable among us, the fatherless, the widow, widow you know, orphans, and, 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 and in a male-dominated society at that moment, women who just couldn't fend for themselves. Or the foreigner, if you've ever been a foreigner or a minority in a certain place, it is unnerving. It really is. I, I mean, I've, I don't think I've even experienced it to the point that others have. But living in a foreign country for almost nine years, I felt constantly out of place. And so when people treated me nicely and well and, and didn't assume things on me, man, it was just a blessing. It was just such a blessing. And so you're, you're back in that time and Israel comes along treating you like this. And when they treat you with dignity and respect as God's fellow creation, you're, you're looking around saying, what's going on? You guys should be pe- treating me badly. I'm not part of your crowd. Justice, equality, love, mercy, respect, honor. These are all God-authored values. They come directly from his heart. They're instilled in us because of him. And we've got to understand that. We didn't make these things up. Israel's God of justice was an absolute paradigm shift of epic proportions. Israel had always been called, by the way, to be a blessing to all peoples of the world, beginning way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham when God started to build his his people, the nation of Israel, right? And blessing meant that Israel and consequently Christians now are to be just, merciful, humble people, as well as the mouthpiece of God to all the people groups of the earth, you know, bringing them under the unity of God's love, valuing others and holding justice as a central pillar of our communities, right? That has always been our call, always. You know, biblical justice is marked by these heart attitudes bleeding out in how we view people and how we treat others with kindness, humility, fairness, justice, right? You know, even standing in the gap when someone experiences oppression at the hand of another, which begs the question, and this is probably the most important question I'll ask today. What, you know, is biblical justice the same as social justice put forth in society today? Is biblical justice the same as the social justice that is put forth in society today? Because God demands justice of his people. He demands us to live justly, right? And injustice is sin. (coughs) Excuse me. Injustice is sin according to the Bible. So if social justice is truly biblical justice, then disagreement can't be tolerated within the church. Really? We have to think about that. Now, the dictionary defines being just as based on or behaving according to what is morally right and fair. Great definition. I fully agree. I fully agree. Based on behaving according to what is morally right and fair. Agree. But Christians have to add something at the end of that. We have to add the phrase according to the Bible. According to the Bible. So the question is, what does social justice claim as morally right and fair? And what does biblical justice claim as morally right and fair? Now, if you go to your dictionary and you look up the term social justice right now, 
most likely you'll, it, it, it'll be defined as the distribution of wealth or maybe even the redistribution of wealth and opportunities and privileges within a society. It's a very different definition, right? That sounds intelligent and lofty, but know that embedded there is a punishment of the current hegemony, the, the current people of power or people in power as unjustly having progressed at the cost of another minority group's or the other minority groups within its influence. And it is distinctly rooted in political and social control and manipulation and coercion. And this is born, and we talked about this a few weeks back, you know, maybe a couple months back actually now, but this is born out of critical theory or critical race theory, which is really truly just derived from Marxism. Whereas biblical justice is born out of our God-given human identity and in how we view and treat others no matter who they are. This value of all peoples, right, that comes from the Bible. Now, critical theory says that people can be divided in two groups, those with power, those without. And it claims that those with power always oppress the powerless, which we know just is not true. It's just not true. It's not always true, let's say it that way. And the categories of oppressed and oppressor are based upon group identities such as race, gender, religion, sexual orientation, income, and probably the list goes on. But you can actually be an oppressor in one category and the oppressed in another due to your varied identities in your own life, which is called intersectionality, right? So we have critical theory and intersectionality working together. For instance, Two white men these days might be seen as oppressors, but if one is gay, he is better off than the other in our current uh, social fabric because he's oppressed as a homosexual, he, or he is, he's been a part of a pre- an oppressed group, you know? Now, intersectionality seeks to measure levels of power and oppression, and the more oppressed you are, the more moral authority or moral righteousness you have according to critical theory. But the gospel is the great equalizer. You know, it, in Romans 3, 23 and 24, it says, uh, for all have, have, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall, fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You know, oppression in the gospel isn't the starting point for communal need and equality. Rather, our created identity as the human race And uh, personal sin equalizes us. God gives value and sin puts us all in the humble position of need before Jesus. You know, oppression, according to the Bible, should always be addressed, but in no way does it deem the oppressed as absolutely innocent before God, nor does it negate mercy for the oppressor. And this is why MLK was so brilliant since he saw the eradication of oppression was to release both the oppressed and the oppressor from the sin of oppression. Amen to that. You know, systems of oppression are complicated things and they do need to be addressed well. And we're all for that. The first subtle lie, though, of critical theory driving the social justice movement right now is the perceived oppression of certain groups makes them morally higher than those perceived to be in power. 
there are three major conflicts between Christianity and critical theory that we really have to listen to. Firstly, critical theory claims that our value lies in our humanistic, self-made identities. Whereas Christianity claims our value comes from being created in God's image, it is our God-given identity. Secondly, critical theory pits people against one another. Whereas Christianity says that God created all equally valuable, that we're all equally guilty of our sin, and we're all able to find grace and mercy in Jesus. The, the, the Bible defines sin as anything which violates God's design for humankind, including oppression of others. But critical theory only defines sin as the oppression of others. Therefore, violence, jealousy, theft, anger, and the like from the oppressed are only considered excusable reactions in the face of the oppressor. And this is because critical theory sees only oppression as sinful, so the oppressed are always innocent, or the perceived oppression is always innocent. And thirdly, the solution of salvation is errant as well. Since critical theory says salvation is only found through social liberation or socioeconomic betterment achieved through activism, which is why activism is so popular right now. Whereas the Bible says all are guilty of sin and all can find salvation only through Jesus. So we can't interpret that God's kingdom is reserved only for those poor and oppressed. David, Moses, Abraham, Nicodemus, and Paul were all living proof that the wealthy, the powerful, and the educated are also in need and equally welcome into the kingdom of God. And likewise, people such as the Samaritan woman at the well, one we would consider to be an oppressed person, are equally culpable for their sin and able to receive grace from Jesus. And she was treated with dignity and respect, but she also was called to account for her sin, and she was held to the same standards of holiness by Jesus as well. That's true equality, by the way. Everyone equal under Christ. Critical theory driving today's social justice movement says that if you, if, even if you're a poor Appalachian guy born into poverty who clawed his way out, building wealth and success for yourself in very honest ways, you did it, all did it really well, that none of that matters. Because if you're identified with the current hegemony, the current people of power, you are considered privileged and deemed to have achieved success through unjust means. Social justice doesn't take the individual into consideration that only works in terms of groups. It doesn't matter if, you've, if we've had a black president, and it doesn't matter if Everything you've done in your life has always been fair and moral in practice. It's, it's only about the, the, the perceived group's oppression and their concerns. The dictionary and accepted definition of social justice is born out of a Marxist theology or ideology, I should say, of state redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their perceived rights to socioeconomic equality. And I say groups since it's not just minorities. Women are included as a persecuted, persecuted group, even though they make up more than half of our society. I think they are like 51 or 52% of society. Now, there are three things which the social justice movement is focused on and, and, and which are antithetical to Christianity right now, or Christian worldview right now. Firstly, 
Now listen very carefully. Firstly, it focuses on minority equality, which we would all agree with. That is a biblical uh, idea, right? It is a biblical charge. But it goes farther than that. It extends into the equity of power and wealth, hence the idea of redistribution. And Scripture calls us to view and treat everybody as equal, but nowhere does it call us distribution of wealth and power across the board. There's no way it says that anywhere. Critical theory dictates that there's no longer any consideration or discussion of the inherent problems or, or sin within an oppressed group, since it assigns blame for disparate outcomes only on the external sin of the oppressor. And it, that is vehemently guarded by this charge of victim blaming, if you attempt to point these things out at all. You know, two weeks ago, we said when evangelizing peoples, we have to consider uh, what to keep, what to change, and what to throw out from a culture when people come to Christ, and the gospel, and that the gospel holds us all responsible for our, for our sin, right? So what, what can we keep that's not uh, antithetical to Christ? What do we have to tweak and change that is anti, you know, can be antithetical to Christ? And what do we have to absolutely throw out because it's totally antithetical to Christ? And in the social justice movement, that's no longer the case. The oppressed group in question is perceived to have no fault. Hiding behind verbal entrapments, which isn't biblical justice and definitely detrimental to society and definitely detrimental to them as a group even though that might not be seen right now. Secondly, the social justice movement is focused on feminism and women's rights. Now, again, listen to me very carefully. We would all agree that women should be viewed and treated as equal in society. Nobody would disagree with that. However, this is no longer the sincere desire it was to overcome subjugation and give women an equal voice and an equal role in society and open up opportunity. It's morphed into the destruction of the male voice to take away power and to silence and has moved into promoting other sexual identities and abortion, which are contrary to Scripture, so contrary to Scripture. This also would not be biblical justice. This also would not be good for women. This also would not be good for the human race as a whole. And thirdly, the social justice movement seeks to advance the LBGTQA plus agenda. We add plus because there's a lot of other letters there that we can't remember. But I don't know if you know that in 1989, there was a book written called After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. It was written by two professors, uh, Kirk and Madsen. One was a professor of marketing, and one was a professor of psychology, if I'm not mistaken. And they had a threefold goal in writing this book, and they were very clear that they sought to change America through propaganda. And their first goal uh, was to desensitize society so much so that to, you know, desensitize it to the homosexual lifestyle. Basically, to get people so familiar with the imagery, imagery and the lifestyle is to have them to accept it. And they, were, they would say, people may have an aversion to taking a shower, but eventually they'll get used to getting, being wet, right? Now, you'll, you will notice not every, every single show, it seems like, on, on TV or in movies ha- has a gay character on it, although the homosexual community in our society is a very narrow slice. It's a very small percentage. Even SpongeBob has come out of the closet, apparently. Their second goal was jamming. 
And this was the desire to associate biblically Christian views with other abhorrent things in society, uh, white supremacy and the KKK and, 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 and oppression of peoples. And they've done very, very well at this. And it's almost embarrassing to say you're a Christian in mixed company anymore. The term is viewed with such negativity. And that, that uh, attack is getting stronger and stronger all the time. Almost every Christian character in, in, on, on TV or in, uh, in movies is portrayed as an unintelligent bigot stuck in ancient, non-relevant ways. And their third goal was conversion, which is simply that people would become allies to the movement. And it's, and it's interesting how quickly we've, we've moved that way, and it's interesting how many Christians have moved that way, right? They've done this by hitching themselves to the plight of persecuted peoples, which is very hard to disagree with without actually sounding like a total insensitive jerk. But let me just be clear that none of those things would be biblical justice. None of those things would be good for the human race. So what the social justice movement and critical theory claim as moral and fair are in very clear contradiction with what the Bible claims as moral and fair. They cannot be married. They cannot. But again, God came up with a concept of justice, and he demands his people practice it in heart and action. I say they can't be married. It, you know, Vody Bauckham once said, uh, thinking that you can support something and not have it affect you, even though you totally disagree with its, its attendance and its beliefs, he said it, that's like putting hot water in the front of your bathtub and thinking that your butt's going to stay cold. It just doesn't work. It does not work. So they can't be married. But again, God came up with the, this concept of justice, and he demands that his people live justly, practice it in heart and action, right? Which means that it is time for us that we should expect persecution. We should expect persecution. Rejoice that you will be persecuted. And, in, and, and it's also a time in which we should get really creative on how we live justly or practice justice and mercy and kindness in new and creative ways, not, but not aligning ourselves with movements which don't reflect God's true heart for these things. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 to end this sermon. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2 says, As for you, and this is everybody, right? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, right? So we were living out of our humanistic, uh, created, self-created identities. We were not living out of our God-given identity with, uh, that, that he has given us, right? And that's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 says. And then it, then it continues in 4 and 5. It says, <clears throat> but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen to that. God did the work to give us back our identity with him right, and raised us to life with him and put, us, put a new heart in us. And then further in Ephesians 2, it gives us the reconciling result of this gospel reality within us. Listen to, the, listen to this passage. You know, this is Ephesians 2, verses 15, or 14, 15, and, 14, and then 15 through 18. It says, 
For he himself is our peace. Talking about Jesus. Who has made the two groups one. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. What were the Gentiles? The Gentiles were just all those nations, all those people groups out there, right? Uh, he, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Listen to this. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and he preached, preached peace to those who were far away, to you who were far away, it says. And that means all the Gentile nations, all those people that have, were not walking with God, and peace to those who were near, the Jewish, Israel, the, uh, the Jewish peoples, right? For through him, through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So, you know, sometimes we get criticized that we say, well, if we just preach the gospel, that that will be, bring peace and that'll bring re- reconciliation. That is the God's honest truth. It's not just preaching it, though. It's living it. It's acting on it. It's, it's that the gospel becomes everything to us. The, the dividing wall of hostility between peoples is only removed via unity in Christ where everyone is truly equal and valued and responsible for their own response to the creator God who has full authority over the human race. It's Romans, or I'm sorry, Revelation 7. That means that shared conviction on what is right and just and moral and fair under Christ that Jesus, that, that, that the Bible gets to define what is morally right and fair and just to me. I don't make it up. Which often, I'm sorry to say, often puts us squarely at odds with, with what our culture has deemed as morally right, just, and fair. But that does not release us from pursuing and preaching this from this biblical perspective. Again, this is about our unity in Christ as guided by the revealed Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and shared scriptural conviction together. So I want to end with this statement. We affirm in this church in 6.8, we affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ has both secured our eternal salvation and broke down the dividing wall of separation, not only between redeemed Jews and Gentiles, but also between believers from every nation, tribe, and language. And this is so Christ might reconcile us not only theologically, but also in practice as one, thereby killing the hostility which separates us. Therefore, we deny that racial reconciliation in the church is a false social gospel, but rather we affirm multi-ethnic unity in the gospel is essential to our witness and brings our conduct in step with the truth of the gospel. Racism is antithetical to the gospel. Therefore, we are vehemently anti-racist. Well, that was a lot to chew on. And I'm sure... Maybe a few of you have a few questions for me or you want to discuss this. Let's discuss. Let's pray together. Let's talk together. Uh, Give me a call. uh, Send me an email. But if you send me an email, uh, I definitely still want to talk to you. I think it's much better we get on the phone or, or sit on the front porch together. But let me pray us out of this. Father God, we thank you for this God given identity. 
We thank you even when it, it crashes into our heart, in, into the things in our lives that we've grown up believing or that we've given ourselves over to in our culture that we think are right, but they actually are not right from a biblical perspective. Lord, we want to be true to you. We want to be true to you because we know that our obedience towards you and our obedience and our calling, that brings fullness to us. That brings true life to us. That everything else falls apart. Everything else fosters hostility. Everything else brings violence. Everything else separates. But you bring us together. We want that picture in Revelation 7 to happen sooner than later. So we ask that you would uh, purify our hearts and make us people that are willing to walk this out and preach it strongly to the people around us. We love you so much. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you want to stick around and, um, and uh, you know, chat on here, you, you're certainly welcome to do that. Uh, I'm going to pop off, but uh, I think Jordan uh, will leave this up for just a little while. So amen. And uh, I hope to see you guys soon.